Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will finally discuss a subject we've been building up to for some time, the war between Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun. It ranks among Arab history's most significant events and among its most lamentable. While the duel was ostensibly between the two Abbasid princes, this devastating chapter of the Caliphate's journey will reveal to us just how influential their advisors truly were. As far as fitness go, this particular instance of civil strife is perhaps our best candidate thus far for the dubious honor of being the inflection point for Arab power, from rise to fall. Episode 56 The Great Fitna Listener, I hope you came prepared for war, because that's all we've got on the menu today. Conflict between the sons of Harun al-Rashid was as inevitable as the sunrise, or at least that's how our sources put it. It may or may not be true, but the dispute was so consequential for the ummah that the oral histories all bend to anticipate its arrival, and our chroniclers color its twists and turns with grand details befitting the transformative upheaval. I'd love to jump right in, as we've been beating around the bush for a while now, but it's always best to open with some context first. Since we come across many divergent narratives during times of fitna, we can use a slightly different telling of how Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun arrived at their standoff, just to mix it up. Depending on whether you'd consider the Abbasid revolution itself a fitna, this one between the half-brothers is either the fourth or fifth the Ummah had been put through and it will prove to be the most destructive of them all. As per their father's succession plans, Al-Amin was made caliph in Baghdad, and Al-Ma'mun was given perpetual and near-autonomous control of Khurasan. Last time, we dove into the details of how this arrangement was undermined by the caliph's sly hajib al-Fadl ibn Rabia. Despite all the disagreement we find in our sources, no accounts absolve the ambitious Hajib of starting this whole mess. The version I'm about to relay, though, emphasizes the role played by Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan in the build-up to the war. This ex-governor of Khurasan had been disgraced and imprisoned by al-Rashid for his mismanagement of the province, only to be immediately released by al-Amin at the urging of his Hajib. Once restored to a position of influence, Ibn Mahan immediately began to push for re-establishing central control of the eastern province, a proposal which had the full backing of Fadl ibn Rabia. The plan needed the vociferous support of these two prominent men, as many in Al-Amin's administration were reluctant to violate the oaths made to the previous caliph. To help them get over their scruples, Al-Rashid's succession arrangement was thus officially rebranded as a plot hatched by the treasonous Baramika. Their dastardly scheme was meant to ensure independence for the East under a pliant Abbasid of Persian blood, a fabrication which conveniently painted Al-Ma'mun as a stooge whose very existence was a threat to the Ummah's unity. Any opposition to the court's view in the matter was looked upon as disloyalty to Al-Amin, 
and thus moderate elements in the administration were silenced, sidelined, or censured. Over the course of two years, Ibn Mahan and Al-Fadl ibn Rabi'a pressured the young caliph to encroach further and further into his brother's domain. At first, Al-Amin authorized letters calling for Al-Ma'mun to cede control of the western parts of Khurasan. These were followed by others to give the capital control of appointments and dismissals in the province. Finally, orders came for Al-Ma'mun to forward all provincial taxes back to Baghdad. All these demands were rebuffed in Maru, and although Khurasan's forces were no match for the caliphates, Fadl ibn Sahil assured the governor that they had the power to defend their position. The wazir reminded al-Ma'mun how hated Ibn Mahan was in the province, and advised him to make common cause with the region's people, who by now had a short but proud history of resisting the Abbasid state. Relations between Iraq and Khurasan continued to worsen from then on. Al-Amin removed his half-brother, Al-Mu'tamin, from his place in charge of the caliphate's Syrian border with the Byzantine Empire. The last straw was when Al-Amin tried installing his son Musa as next in line, first merely ahead of his two brothers, and later on without them entirely. Al-Ma'mun took the hint. He cut off all communication with the caliphate to make sure Baghdad could not intimidate his officials into submission. In response, Al-Amin put together an army of 40,000 and tasked Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan, leader of the Abna, with leading it to glorious victory over Khurasan. Accounts differ on what the reaction was in Maru when Al-Ma'mun learned about the massive army heading his way. Some say the governor would have surrendered had it not been for his wazir, Al-Fadl ibn Sahil, who convinced him that resistance was possible. If that's true, then Ibn Zahil must have been a really smooth talker, because Khurasan barely had any forces to speak of. While the recent alliance with the local nobles of the province had freed up Harthama's men, they were still out further east and had to rest following their recent campaigns. Speaking of Harthama, he's the only leader of the Abna who ended up on Al-Ma'mun's side in this conflict, probably because he was already in Khurasan when it began. Anyway, we're told that Al-Ma'mun had less than 5,000 soldiers to spare, so anyone sent to face Ibn Mahan's 40,000 was on a suicide mission. Tahir ibn Hussein, a descendant of Khurasani nobility from around Herat, was selected for the task, and it is both helpful and fascinating to compare the two adversaries. Tahir's grandfather had backed the Abbasids when they first made their bid to unseat the Umayyads. Ibn Mahan's father, Isa, was one of the higher-ups in the secret da'wah even before then. So in a sense, they represent the two types of Khurasani support that had fueled the Abbasid revolution. Isa ibn Mahan lacked noble standing, but his military service for the Abbasids enabled his son to become a prominent member of the Khurasaniya. Although Isa was later accused of disloyalty by Abu Muslim and put to death, his son Ali continued to serve in the caliph's armies. He relocated to Baghdad after Al-Mansur founded the City of Peace and doled out generous land grants to his Khurasaniya. These forces quickly came to be known as the Sons of the State, or the Abna. Ali ibn Mahan rose through their ranks over the years and eventually became by far the most influential member of the military and represented the Abna in the court of every caliph 
since Al-Mansur. By contrast, Tahir's ancestors had stayed home, and they were happy to continue supporting the Abbasid state as long as it treated them better than the Umayyads had. Al-Mansur's policy of using only Khurasaniya to govern the eastern province was meant to ensure that this was always the case. It only worked for a couple decades, though. Tethered to the caliph's service, the Abna came to see their interests aligned with Baghdad and not their province of origin. Those of them who governed Khurasan came to mistreat and overtax their subjects, leading to rebellions against Abbasid authority. Ibn Mahan was the worst offender of the bunch, and his 11-year stint as governor sparked more opposition than anything seen since the dawn of the dynasty. Tahir was serving in the province at the time, and he was jailed for several years on account of his opposition to the governor's unjust methods. Presented with the opportunity to meet him in open battle, Tahir accepted command of a small force of between four and 5,000 and went to face off against the hated Ibn Mahan. He marched them all the way to the western edge of the province, and they prepared to meet the caliph's forces in the city of Rai, a suburb of Tehran today. In almost every account on the subject, we're told that ahead of this battle, Ibn Mahan was dismissive and unconcerned. Justifiably so. His army was over ten times larger than Tahir's, a man Ibn Mahan looked down upon as a trifling rabble-rouser. He intended to blow right past him, reasoning that Tahir's tiny band wouldn't dare face them in battle, and eventually the people of Rai themselves would expel the petrified force after it had overstayed its welcome. The narrations almost compete at making Ibn Mahan seem foolish and haughty, but say what they will, the numbers were on his side. As the many narrations not so subtly suggest, Ibn Mahan was too careless though, because Tahir did lead his men against their much larger foe. On the 3rd of July, 811, the forces of Khurasan led a desperate charge against the Abna, and they accomplished the unthinkable. Every source tells it differently, but Tahir's small army, which consisted entirely of cavalry, made its way towards Ibn Mahan's position even though that left it exposed and with no way to escape. Once close enough, they either felled the unprepared general with arrows or a lightning-fast charge which he did not anticipate. They decapitated their enemy and waved his head around to show his troops that their cause was lost. Surprisingly, it worked and the caliphate's army simply disbanded as it took flight back west. There's an account which contrasts the reactions to this stunning upset in Maru and Baghdad. In the former, we're told Al-Fadl ibn Sahil asked to see the head of Ibn Mahan to confirm the news, then immediately went about taking pledges for Al-Ma'mun. Apparently, he was worried that Al-Amin would sue for peace following his surprise defeat, and he wanted to make it difficult for Al-Ma'mun to back out. The mood shifted palpably in Khurasan, and thousands now volunteered to join the governor's fight against the caliph. In Baghdad, however, Al-Amin dismissed the man who brought news from the front because he was in the middle of a fishing contest with Kawthar, his favorite servant. When he later found the time to properly address the issue, the caliph ordered the Abna to assemble another army. They put together 20,000 under the leadership of Abdurrahman ibn Jabla and made their way to Hamadan, west of Rai, 
the rank and file of the Ibna filled the army that had been sent with Ibn Mahan. This new one consisted overwhelmingly of the group's most prominent sons, and Abdul Rahman was urged to exercise far more caution than his predecessor had. The new Abna army made its base in Hamadan and met with Tahir's forces some time in November. We don't have much about the battle. From what I can tell, all we know is that the Abna were quickly routed but managed to retreat back into Hamadan, where they recouped and reorganized for a while. Following a few hard-fought battles, they were defeated by Tahir's smaller army and fled west without inflicting much damage on them. So what was going on? Why were these armies crumbling in the face of smaller foes? Lots of accounts enjoy waxing poetic about providence or divine justice, but if we take a closer look, we can make out some cogent explanations. It doesn't seem like the caliph inspired much confidence in those who were meant to fight for him. His self-indulgent and childish behavior had to make them think twice about why they were putting their lives on the line. By now it must have been clear to everyone that he was running the state into the ground. Furthermore, the whole idea of invading Khorasan seems to have had little purchase beyond the caliph's immediate circle of advisors, and the death of Ibn Mahan left the Abna with very few leaders who were willing to take charge of the questionable project. Another clue that the Abna had become less reliable after Ibn Mahan's death is that the caliph's hajib and Rabia ibn Fadl looked for muscle elsewhere following Abdul Rahman's defeat. He went to Asad ibn Yazid al-Shaybani, son of the legendary tribal leader from Jazeera, and begged him to save the caliphate from the Persian horde hurtling towards them all. Asad said he could only do it if certain conditions were met, and the hajib arranged for an audience with the caliph so everything could be authorized. It took Al-Amin all of two minutes to have Asad arrested for daring to make demands of him. Then he ordered his uncle to lead the Shaybani tribe against Tahir. Another Abna army was assembled and put under the charge of Abdullah ibn Hamid ibn Khartaba for the same purpose, and both forces made their way to Hulwan, west of Hamadan. Once there, they began to squabble with one another. Some accounts credit their falling out to Tahir's subterfuge, but it's more likely that the Abna viewed the Shaybanis as rivals who were competing for the caliph's favor. Whatever the deal was, the two forces fought for a bit, then withdrew from the city without facing Tahir in battle at all. Some histories deny everything said about Hulwan, so perhaps this baffling failure was just a metaphor for the confusion which Al-Amin's troops found themselves in as Al-Ma'mun's forces continued their undefeated advance. Tahir decided to spend the winter in Hulwan and to pick up his campaign refreshed in the spring. He was quickly joined by Hirthama, who came with reinforcements and new orders. The two were to split the forces they had between them. Tahir would head to Khuzistan and approach the capital from the south, while Hirthama would head west and come down on it from the north. As the two commanders spent the winter preparing for the next leg of their campaign against the caliphate, Al-Amin's dumpster fire of a rain burned brighter than ever. Desperate for more soldiers, the caliph tried to organize a recruitment drive for the Syrian tribes in January of 812. He foolishly sent the Abna to support these efforts, and predictably, the old hostilities between them and the Syrians resurfaced, and the whole thing descended into chaos. 
the Ebna resented what they saw as the caliph's attempts to replace them, and they were quick to antagonize any potential competitor. The forces Al-Amin sent to Syria were led by Hussein ibn Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan, and the commander grew increasingly embittered by the caliph's ruinous leadership. The fiasco in Syria pushed him over the edge, and in March, Hussein ibn Mahan did something crazy. He took his troops back to the capital and led a coup against the caliph. He imprisoned Al-Amin in the Abna's headquarters and declared Al-Ma'mun to be the rightful caliph. This astonishing turn of events was quickly undone by other leaders of the Abna who begrudged Hussein ibn Mahan for unilaterally pulling the trigger like that. They released Al-Amin and arrested Ibn Mahan, who was soon put to death. Although the caliph was swiftly restored to power, the wonders of this episode were not lost on his hajib. The shameless Fadl ibn Rabi'a is said to have tendered his resignation and disappeared from the scene altogether. Despite having instigated this civil war, now that he understood Al-Amin's cause to be hopeless, he saw no sense in hanging around, waiting for the axe to drop. When spring arrived, Tahir began his next assault. In April, he ventured south, towards Khuzistan or Ahwaz. In Faris, he defeated a garrison led by a Muhallabite commander and encountered very little resistance through the rest of his advance. His ranks swelled with soldiers as more men joined Tahir now that his forces seemed to have unstoppable momentum. From Khuzistan, he claimed Bahrain and down the Arabian Peninsula all the way to Oman. Governors along this eastern stretch declared allegiance to Al-Ma'mun as soon as Tahir's forces cut them off from the rest of the caliphate, and the commander marched his army to Basra, a city which put up some resistance before falling to his control. This all took place within a matter of weeks, and in short order Wasit and Kufa both declared for Al-Ma'mun as well. Governors in the holy city of Mecca and Medina, and across both Syria and Egypt, pledged their allegiance to Al-Ma'mun around this time, by May 812. The caliph's authority no longer extended past the walls of his own city, and he had few supporters ready to fight for his claim to be leader of the Ummah. In August of that same year, Tahir began the siege of Baghdad. So many of the Abna had joined him by this point that he chose their headquarters, the Harbiya district in the northwest of the city, as his base of operations. Trebuchets and other siege engines were deployed, and the city was bombarded by Tahir's forces relentlessly. The increasingly desperate caliph refused to face the music, however. Some accounts say he sold household items to finance his lifestyle, others that Al-Amin melted down all his silver and gold to mint new coins. One account highlights his lack of concern for Baghdad by saying that the caliph enjoyed the spectacle of its destruction and only withdrew away from it after some debris injured his beloved servant, Kawthar. That one may be a little over the top, but Al-Amin showcased his true indifference to the capital when he ordered that all criminals be released and armed so that they could defend their city. It instantly turned into a hellscape, as the caliph's new recruits rampaged through it. Many accounts make it clear that Al-Amin's improvised solution to Tahir's siege did far more damage to Baghdad than the Khurasanis. The criminals terrorized and pillaged the local population, 
many of whom starved to death as a result. It took over a year before the residents of the capital could handle no more. Khuzayma ibn Khazim, the only leader among the Abna who had advised Al-Amin against moving on Khurasan, sent men to sabotage some pontoon bridges, enabling Tahir's men to get close enough to shell the caliph's inner sanctum. We might as well use the longer, more entertaining account of Al-Amin's final days. A Abbasid cousin was worried about him, and he visited the caliph one day in early September of 813. He found the palace in shambles, deserted by Al-Amin's usual posse and down to a skeleton staff of servants. The caliph seemed barely concerned about it, almost oblivious, really, and suggested that they share some wine. As the two were getting their drink on, Al-Amin asked a woman from his harem to sing to them. Lo and behold, her name happened to be Weakness, and three times the caliph chastised her for her ominous choice of poetry, but her lines only grew darker. After the third time he dismissed her, and as she ran out, Weakness stumbled on and destroyed a priceless glass object the caliph treasured, an unsubtle stand-in for his dominion over the ummah. Al-Amin slept off the heavy-handed foreshadowing of that gloomy night in peace, but the next day trebuchets were close enough to put him in real danger. Some say he wrote to Harthama's camp to turn himself in, others that Harthama was the one who'd reached out with an offer of safety in exchange for his surrender. Al-Amin set out to cross the river on a small boat, but he was discovered by Tahir's men after his vessel capsized. They captured him when he swam ashore and took him to their commander, who swiftly ordered the caliph's execution. This was the ignoble end of Al-Amin's four-and-a-half-year reign. While it was all over for him, Baghdad would continue to suffer as lawlessness pervaded the caliphate's west. The capital had been so thoroughly ransacked during the 13-month-long siege that Tahir's troops mutinied when they found no riches with which to reward themselves after their hard-fought victory. It wasn't long before cooler heads prevailed, though, and the commander soon regained control of the situation. Technically, everything from here on out happened during Al-Ma'mun's reign, so let's leave it for next time. Let's return our focus to the conflict instead, its significance, its cost, and why Al-Rashid remains the best person to blame it on. It's easy to misunderstand this fitna as a contest between two brothers, a transgressor and a victim. Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan is actually closer to the heart of the dispute than either prince. The war between Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun was simply the final act in a much grander production about the power balance between Khurasan and the Arabs. The parallels between the Abbasid revolution and what we covered today are not coincidental. In both instances, an East united after years of wanton oppression triumphed over a cruel and unjust caliphate. Khurasan's forces fought with purpose and a live-free-or-die determination, while the caliph's men were unconvinced of their own leadership and as a result were just looking out for themselves. Their defeat is only surprising because of Al-Amin's overwhelming starting advantage, something he cluelessly blundered away. But don't get distracted by the scale of Al-Amin's incompetence. 
don't succumb to the satisfaction of seeing him get his just desserts. Ultimately, it wasn't the caliph's fault Khorasan was up in arms to begin with. It was his father's. Ibn Mahan had been allowed to abuse it for over a decade under al-Rashid's watch. Dozens of rebellions were quashed by Maru and ignored by Baghdad, and al-Rashid never investigated how his governor was collecting enough tax revenue to literally bribe the Ummah's richest man, its caliph. So even if al-Amin shot himself in the foot by appointing Khorasan's most hated figure in charge of his armies, that was a reputation Ibn Mahan had earned during his father's reign. Even the very structure of al-Rashid's succession arrangement encouraged conflict between Khurasan and Iraq. Granting the aggrieved and rebellious East its autonomy under a Abbasid who could claim the throne was always going to be risky. All this evidence, and I still haven't mentioned anything about al-Rashid's empowerment of Fadl ibn Rabia, the conflict's most effective agitator. So if this was about Khurasan and the Arabs, and Khurasan had come out on top, what did that mean for the caliphate? Well, for one thing, it meant the destruction of Baghdad. Al-Ma'mun's armies were full of men who hated the capital, and Al-Amin refused to step down until everything had turned to dust. Cities which took pledges for Al-Ma'mun without being attacked were spared, but not for long, as anarchy swept through the whole region in the ensuing years. Another worrying consequence of this unexpected outcome was what it meant for the caliphate's armies. The Abbasid revolution had already undermined Arab military power by replacing their tribal armies with those of the Abna, Arabs of the East and their Arabized clients. Most Arabs saw them as outsiders, with their loyalty to the caliph being their only tether to the wider political project of the Ummah. The Khurasani forces that had vanquished the Abna were even further removed from this enterprise. They hadn't fought and died to guide the caliphate onto a more just path. They had risked their lives to earn their independence from it. But there is an even more consequential difference between Al-Ma'mun's victory and the success of the Abbasid revolution. The latter had been in the works for decades, with careful planning at every level. It had a leader ready to seek out pledges, create useful alliances, and claim the mantle of the caliph. Al-Amin didn't even expect to survive before Tahir's miraculous win over Ibn Mahan. Prior to becoming governor of Khurasan, he had never held a position of prominence in his father's administration. The combined influence of Zubaydah and Amin and the Abbasid clan ensured that he was practically shunned in Baghdad. This problematic history helped convince Al-Amin to remain in Maru during the war, as his wazir had insisted but he stayed away even after his brother's execution. Although pledges were taken on his behalf, his continued absence made his ascension seem merely notional outside of Khurasan. Considering al-Ma'mun's lack of preparation for his own triumph, it shouldn't be surprising that its aftermath was far more chaotic than the Abbasid revolution. I suppose it's appropriate to end on this dark note today. I'm no fan of Al-Amin, but I honestly have a hard time seeing the callow youth as anything other than a victim. His whole childhood, those around him catered to his whims, told him how perfect he was, and psyched him up about how awesome it was going to be when he became the richest, most powerful man in the world. 
As caliph, he said yes to everything his father's advisors recommended, and otherwise remained the unrestrained Epicurean he'd always been. Listening to the adults must have seemed like the responsible thing to do, but somehow it resulted in a literal, albeit localized, apocalypse. He was totally unprepared for the position so many insisted he inherited that it's hard not to get angry at those responsible for that decision. Zubaydah, the Abbasids, Fadl ibn Rabia, but chief among them, who else? Harun al-Rashid. He can't say Yahya al-Barmaki didn't warn him, and looking back at his intricate succession plan with all its oaths, safeguards, and whatnot, it almost seems like he knew that he was making a horrendous mistake, though that could also just be a failure of the oral material. Although al-Amin proved to be a terrible caliph, his half-brother will go down as one of the best in history. It's the claim we have to investigate together far more deeply, however, because their father also makes that list, and you know how I feel about him by now. We'll begin our dive into al-Ma'mun's reign in four weeks, as I've been both busy at work recently and will be moving to a new apartment soon. Wish me luck, and rejoin me next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.